Justice is a two-edged sword. You can't give justice to simply the victim. The only way to give justice is to, for a sword to cut two ways. For example, what's happened in Chattanooga recently, the horrific death of four Marines, uh, the loss of life, although the, the uh, perpetrator was killed at the scene, uh, had that individual lived, those families would have wanted justice and they'd have gone through months, if not years, of, of legal issues and incarcerations and trials to determine uh, how to, uh, how to uh, charge that case and what to do with it. Uh, and you'll find victims' families often saying, justice was served today after a trial or a long hearing. And justice was finally served. This person is going away for life, perhaps as a capital offense. And what that illustrates is that the sword of justice from antiquity to today cuts two ways. You can't just administer mercy to the victim. It doesn't help. Justice must cut to the perpetrator, to the one who committed the evil, to the one who committed the act of sin. That person has to be judged for justice to work. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Joint and marrow, thoughts and intentions of our... The word judges. We read a passage today in our worship set where the judgment has come. We don't like to talk about judgment in a politically correct environment that has to love everybody and tolerate everything. But Scripture, in even antiquity, even apart from Scripture, if you look at Egyptian dynasties or whatever, you're going to find justice has two sides. In order for justice to be measured... The mercy must be given relief of some kind, and the perpetrator must be judged for his or her action. We live in a corrupt world. It's not just a culture war. It's not just a turf war. It is the war for the souls of men. And far beyond what the eye sees, far beyond what we experience in our little microcosm of our lives, there's a war going on that is unseen that we are not fighting, but we are part of that engagement, whether we are aware of it or not. Evil and sin are real. Today we're going to look at Genesis 19, if you have your Bible open there. Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps it's well known. It is a difficult passage in some respects, but it is a page of the Word of God. And as our commitment at fellowship, we teach through the Scripture expositionally. We go through it chapter at a time, paragraph at a time, trying to see what God, how God's Word was given at the context, and then how we apply it in our current world today. Unbridled sin is going to be judged in Genesis 19. Uh, you can't get around this from a biblical standpoint. You can try to change the storyline, but the story is parallel to many stories in Scripture. And Noah, in Noah's day, in Genesis 6, God got to the point where he's going to destroy the earth by a flood. And Noah, the single man who found favor with God, is set apart, his family, and along with the animals, are put in an ark, and they are saved, and God judges the world. We see a new parallel today in, Gen in Genesis 19. There are a handful of people, Lot and his family, and God is going to save that righteous thread and get them out and destroy the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment will come at a certain point. It will come at the end. The sword has to cut two ways. God destroyed the earth when he saved Noah and his family. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in the text we're going to see today. Now, fast forward. Jesus Christ is going to come. God incarnate. Fully God, fully man. And God's going to kill him. Justice must cut two ways. For God to save and have mercy on us sinners, he's going to kill his son. God is not exempt from his own standards of justice. And you must understand this at the theological level before we get into the details of it. He is a just, holy, righteous, merciful, loving God all at the same time. 
But love also executes judgments. Mandy said it well. It's two sides of the same coin in a sense. The wrath of God and the love of God are two sides of the same coin. For him to administer love, he must issue justice. He can't bring judgment and justice absent. He can't just give you love. Let's love everybody because he's a holy God. And only those who are holy and righteous can approach a holy God. Well, Genesis chapter 2 is sad in so many storylines because Lot has camped too close to sin. And that's the question of the hour that I want you to think about as we go through this story. Is are you, have you camped too close to sin? You remember Lot's journey began, Genesis 13. He chooses the valleys below. And in that choice selection, he's living outside. Then he's camped near Sodom and Gomorrah. Next, we find him in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this text, we find him judging in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where our storyline begins. Genesis chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, the first three verses. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside aside to him and entered his house And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. These two angels are sent to warn uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, to warn Lot about the judgment that is to come. If you're a Bible study fellowship student or a precept student, a great exercise for you this week is to take Genesis 18 and 19 side by side on pieces of paper and have a field day. The parallels are incredible. The angels visit Abraham, the angels visit Lot. How Abraham responds to the angels, how Lot responds to the angels. It goes on and on. It's a remarkable parallel that we can't show in a 30 or 40 minute message, but one that you can certainly study on your own and glean lots of gold. Um, The comparisons are very important because we're being set up. Here's the righteous Abraham against the semi-pseudo-quasi-righteous Lot that we're going to find out more about his story. In verses 4 to 11, Sodom is wicked. But it's not just that they're wicked. It's Sodom's determination to corrupt good. Sodom isn't just wicked and sort of tolerant of those who aren't wicked. Sodom wants to impose its wickedness on others. And that's what we see in the story with the two angels, verses 4 to 11. Before they lay down, the men of the city, before evening in other words, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under my roof, shelter of my roof. But they said to him, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, 
so that all wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. When you read this story, the verbal movement, the subject matter of the story should create tension. It should create tension in the reader today as it created tension in the hearer of antiquity when the story was retold. The verbal movement, some of the words will point out, the hands, the grabbing, the urging strongly. The, the whole language of the story is a tenth story that's going to be resolved in a horrific way. And it was intended that way, and there should be some discomfort when you read these accounts intended in the way God's word is recorded. Lot's house is surrounded, he's outnumbered, and they're pressing in, nearly breaking the door down, but it's going to require these angels, metaphorically, by the scruff of the neck, they're going to pull Lot back in the house. We're going to see that hand at work in another part of the story very soon. Now, the phrase have relations must be discussed. In Hebrew, it's the phrase yada or yadag, a soft G on the end, yada or yadag. It means to know. When Adam had relations with his wife Eve. He knew her. King James would say Adam knew his wife Eve. Cain knew his wife and they conceived a child. To know in Hebrew means sexual intercourse. That's what it means. So when they say we want to have relations with this, these men, they're talking about homosexual rape. That's what the phrase means. In Genesis chapter 4 and 17, the relationship was heterosexual monogamous the way God intended. Now it has permutated into an evil lifestyle that Sodom and Gomorrah are a byword for knowing. This same term finds its way in a very unfortunate parallel story in Judges 19. The men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the, the, the house, pounding on the door. This is Judges 19.22. And they spoke to the owner of the house... The old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Same word. As sin began with Adam and the woman, as sin began with Abram and Abraham when he lies, as sin goes on to his nephew, as sin goes on to Jacob, sins continue, nothing, nothing is new. Homosexual rape was not new in antiquity. It was happening. It happens today. Sin is sin. We'll talk about that later. But that's the context. It's plain. It's clear. It's simple. This is what the text says. This is what the language says consistently through the Bible. Now, the challenge we're faced with is those who take a different position on same-sex marriage, loving relations, if, if they're going to do justice with the text, they're going to take six key passages and go after them. The way they resolve, quote-unquote, this passage is to say it's a story of hospitality, not of rape. And they work overtime, liberal scholars do, to say this is a story of egregious lack of hospitality. Well, Lot brought them in his home, and the language couldn't be clearer that these men want to have relations with them. And Lot's half-baked solution, we'll see in a minute, only continues to show it's not about hospitality, it's about sexual malice. But nevertheless, if you hold to those views, you have to either cut this out, ignore it, dismiss it, Work it away scholastically. Somehow you've got to deal with it because it can't say what it says. Otherwise, we're wrong. And that's true with most attacks on the Bible when we come to passages that we have a hard time with. Um, the plain, clear meaning of the passage is homosexual rape on the part of these two visiting guests. Now, Lot is a hypocrite in the way he responds to it. Even though he is Abram's nephew, even though he's related to the promise and the covenant, he's still a hypocrite nonetheless. In verse 8, he's willing to sacrifice his two virgin daughters. Do whatever you like. Alan Ross writes, even this perverted good 
was rejected by those bent on evil. Even this twisted notion, I'll give you my two virgin daughters to ravish, just don't touch these two heavenly visitors. Lot knows they're angels. Don't molest these two angels. It tells us volumes about Lot. Any father in here that's had a daughter, I've had three daughters, to think about turning my daughters over to some sexually perverse mob to let them do what they may with them to protect some house guests. I mean, you just take that father out in the back and bury him quietly. I mean, what fa- it's unconscionable that any father would give his two daughters to a group of vicious, sexually immoral men. At the moment of crisis, the angel drags him by the hand. If you drop down to verse 16, you're going to see those angels are going to have to drag them out with their hands to get them out of the city. So he's got to drag Lot out of a context. Did you notice when he refers to them, he calls them brothers? He's in the city. He's a judge in the city. Where on the opening verse, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. That idiom means he's a leader of the town. When Ruth and Boaz, the story account, when he goes to marry Ruth, he goes to the judges at the gate. Think of it as a Jewish biblical city council. There were no civil and religious government in that time. It was a theocracy. They were under Yahweh Elohim. And the judges sat at the gate, protecting the city as well as ruling in cases inside the city, as in the story of Ruth and Boaz. So you see Lot is acting the part of the judge. Verses 12 to 14, God's angels warn about the coming judgment. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. If you drop over to chapter 18, verse 20, you'll see their sin is exceedingly grave. That was the discourse with Abraham and God. Will you destroy the city if? Will you just, if there's just ten left, if there's five left. And he said, look, their sin is exceedingly grave. It's like chapter 6 of Genesis. God is going to destroy the earth. But Abraham is concerned for the handful of righteous. Lot is concerned for himself. The contrast comparisons couldn't be more stark. Well, the outcry parallels another issue in Scripture. When Abel is killed by Cain... His blood cries out from the ground. Remember that story? Where's your brother? Who am I? My brother's keeper. King's English. Uh, his blood is crying out from the ground. There's the sword of justice. Something had happened. A perpetrator, a murder had occurred, and the blood is crying out for justice. The sword must come and cut two ways. It has to administer mercy to Abel's death and his family, and it must cut justice to Cain, the perpetrator. And Cain is marked and becomes a nomad and somewhat of a, a, a conflicted character all through his life, building cities and, and against his family because of the, he killed his brother. Here we have the wickedness is crying out. When the angels visited Abraham in Genesis 18, they left with blessing and a promise. When they visit Lot in chapter 19, they leave with imminent judgment and destruction is at hand. 
Well, Lot's integration and attachment is seen in Sodom. He doesn't want to leave. We'll see it in a number of ways. But the Hebrew ear would, uh, would hear what we can't hear when the sons-in-laws are jesting at him. The word jesting is a word play on Isaac. Back to our story. When Abraham laughs and God doesn't judge him, we probably understand that as a laughter of, I can't believe it. How in the world this good thing happened to me? I'm almost 100 years old. How am I going to have a son? Sarah, on the other hand, laughs, and I love that angel confrontation because we laugh. because no, I didn't. Yes, you did. I love that. Uh, she's laughing because I can't believe it. That's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. So the name of the child is Isaac, which is the wordplay on laughter in every time it's used. Here, it's the same root. Here, it's a dismissive, a derision laugh. Oh, get out of here. Well, you just, you know, what do you think? You crazy? Now, these sons-in-laws, we don't know their identity. Scripture protects their identity. But what we do know is had they been betrothed to Lot's daughters, a betrothal was much more than a Western engagement, but not quite a wedding. It's much more intense and commit, a larger commitment than the Western concept of an engagement. Uh, they probably weren't married at this point. We can't know for sure. We just don't know that much about his lineage. The scripture doesn't give us those details. But, uh, but what happens here in our context is that believers are enamored with sin. They're living in the culture of sin, and God is going to deal with it because it's abhorrent to God. Verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. And if you go back, the men have taken the hand to get Lot out of the crushing crowd in his house and brought him back in the house. The same hands are going to take him and drag him out of the city to save him from the coming judgment. Verse 17, when they had brought them outside, one said, one of the angels said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you've magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains for disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to. It's small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you spoke, and hurry escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The angels have to literally drag the worldly believers out of this context of sin to get them out. Remember the once wealthy Lot. They had to separate because their possessions between Abraham and Lot had become so large. Their, their flocks and herds and the people groups that were Bedouin-like traveling had, had split in Genesis 13. This man has gone into a city. He's camped outside it. He's camped near it. He lives in it. Now he's a judge. And now he's going to get out with two daughters and a wife. But the wife, as you know, is a short-lived story. He hesitated. Notice the contrast three times in chapter six, uh, chapter, verses 16 and following. But he hesitated. Verse 18, but Lot said. Verse 19, but I cannot escape. Doesn't he understand what God's going to do? Two angelic visitors have come. They've rescued him from this, from this mob outside, protecting themselves as well. They're going to try and save him and his family, and he's fighting them all the way. And the hypocrisy of throwing his daughters to try to abate this wicked onslaught from the men of the city of Sodom, he doesn't get it. He hesitates. 
Lot had camped too long next to Sodom. He'd become part of the community, part of the thinking. He became part of the culture of sin. Derek Kidner writes, The grip of this present evil world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience. In my world, that's a $25 sentence. Listen again. The grip of this present evil world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience. You see, we're in the world now, and many of us have camped pretty close to sin, or we're camping in sin. And we love it, even though we have a bad conscience. That's what Kidner captures in eight words or less. The grip of this present evil world, even on those who love it with a bad conscience, is powerfully shown in this last-minute struggle. The warning to remember Lot's wife, which Jesus speaks of in chapter 17, Luke verse 32, gives us reason to see ourselves potentially lingering, quibbling like Lot himself, wheedling one last concession as he's dragged to safety. He continues, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of him. He must have his little Sodom again if his life is to be supportable. See, he said, I want, to, I want you to flee the mountains. It's going to be swept away. In Middle Eastern language, that sweeping away is of a wadi of destruction. Wadis are dry riverbeds that flash floods to this day can destroy people. Uh, recently, it was two years ago, a massive fl flash flood in a wadi killed a bunch of tourists, uh, Israeli tourists. So it, these things can happen in, in the Negev, in the south part of the land. He said, no, we want you to go to the mountain. We're going we're, we're to help you get out of here. Go to the high place. No, I, I want to go to Zoar, a valley called Zoar, and the rich irony of that story is seen in where he comes from. We'll come to that in a minute. The worldly believer is going to have to be drug out by angels to be free of the destruction. Um, Lot's prayer slash plea is, is a strange conglomeration. He uses three very key Hebrew terms. You I found favor, loving kindness, and you saved my life. All of them are soteriological. All of them are salvation-oriented words. But he doesn't say thank you for these. He goes, he goes, you've done these to me. You've given me favor. You've given me loving kindness. Save my life. And it's almost what a modern equivalent is this entitlement culture. It's almost a theological entitlement culture. I have favor. I need loving kindness, and you're going to save me. Now, by the way, give me this little city on the way out, too. It's a very strange concession that he asks for. It's even more curious that God gives it to him, regrettably. Well, he preserves the righteous, verses 23 and following. The sun had risen over the earth. So that gives us a 24-hour time period from the story begins in verse 19 when it's evening and Lot's sitting at the gate. Now we've got the time stamp. The sun's coming up, so it's been this evening in the morning. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, parched earth. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, true to his word, the Lord brings destruction. Uh, it clearly represents the divine judgment that he had told them. The wickedness had become exceedingly great. It was unbridled. It was time to stop. God tells Abraham he's going to destroy it. Abraham pleads with God, if there's a handful of righteous, would you spare? Think of Abraham's position. He's concerned about all these people, not just his nephew. Won't you spare all? If there's just a hand, 50, 45, if just a handful, will you spare these people? 
The contrast of Abraham's heart versus Lot's heart could not be more vivid. Well, the discussion of brimstone and fire will be debated until the end of time. What the actual essence of it was, I do not know. What we do know from the text is the extensive nature of the judgment. If you were to visit the areas today south, it's often called the Negev, where the Dead Sea is and below, and you stand there as a tourist looking out, um, it's pretty easy to see what parched land would look like. The Dead Sea is comprised of the most interesting uh, water pool on the planet. Magnesium, calcium, and sodium levels are so high, you literally can float in the Dead Sea. The axiom is you, you can't sink, but you can drown. There is no living bacteria. There's no living microorganism. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Nothing is living in that water. It's a slimy, syrupy, thick, salt brackish, burn your eyes, burn your mouth. If you shaved your legs or face the day you got in it, it's like fire when you get in the Dead Sea. It's a wonderful experience. Um, the, the Dead Sea is a picture. There's pillars of salt, they call them, as they go into water and look at them. They even have one name, Lot's wife. And then the Gev in that area is an arid area. Now, in the springtime, once in a 20 years, a dew will come, and there'll be a little green frost on it that will last for a few days or weeks, but it's gone. It's desert. And when you stand there and look south, you're looking at the areas that would likely have been Sodom and Gomorrah. We can't know bulldogmatically. We can know pretty accurately within 20 kilometers or so, this would be the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar that are still uh, left that way today. The extensive nature of it uh, is, is evident in the text, the extensive nature of it in the storyline, the fact that Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, and the fact that she stands as a monument for one who turned back. She couldn't let go. She'd camp too long beside sin. And to realize it's all going to be destroyed, but I'm afraid to be saved to the mountaintop. And the metaphor couldn't be more poignant. Get out of the valley. Let me go to this little valley down here. Let me keep my little piece of Sodom is what he's really saying. I don't want to leave. Well, the Lord brings destruction, but he's still faithful to the righteous. Verse 27. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning. So the story shifts from the Lot account to Abraham. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and looked, behold, the smoke of the land ascended like smoke of a furnace. And think about parched ground. Think about, as far as I could see, just smoldering and billowing from whatever destruction God had brought on the land. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. And the language is very reminiscent of the promise. He remembers, when God remembered Noah or God remembered Abraham, it was like, oh, I forgot about Noah, I forgot about Abraham. It's covenant language. God made a covenant and he's keeping true to his covenant. And his agreement with Abraham was, I'll spare the city if there's five or ten, but there's not. In fact, only three technically escape if you consider Lot's wife part of the collateral damage of the story. Um, Alan Ross writes a beautiful summary of this. It's a little bit long, but he writes well, so let me read Dr. Ross's comments. Genuine faith is often hard to detect. Here was an upright citizen, hospitable, generous, and a leader of the community who was a judge, meaning he would screen out the wickedness from the town and advise on good living. He knew truth and justice, righteousness and evil. Yet in spite of the denunciation of the lifestyle of his people, 
he preferred the good life of their society. He preferred living comfortably in the city rather than living in the hills. The hour of truth came when the Lord interrupted his life. His true loyalty was revealed as godly, but in the process, his past hypocrisy is uncovered. The saint who'd pitched his tent near the city, the evil city, now the evil city controlled his life. Oh, he was moral. He knew great, great evil when he saw it. He opposed sodomy and homosexuality. But ironically, he would sacrifice his daughter's virginity to fend off the voice of evil men. He would escape judgment by the grace of God, but his heart had become part of this world. His wife was just too attached to the city to follow the, grace of call, the call of grace, and his daughters were not uncomfortable with the immorality of their father. Hypocrisy was revealed by the visitation from on high. As long as the Lord left him alone, he would hold to his faith but live in Sodom. Ultimately, he could not have it both ways. Sodom would destroy him if the Lord had not destroyed Sodom. And the epitaph he gives on the, um, his daughter's uncomfortable, were not uncomfortable with immorality, is next week as we conclude the chapter. And Rob will expound that passage. Of, and again, the corollaries between Noah and the judgment and Noah and, and the daughters there and Lot and so forth is parallel. You'll see it next week, but it's also PG-13. Some observations and lessons. Number one, we must remember again and again, all of us are sinners. Um, in, in our current culture we have right now, uh, it can be easy to uh, get angry and fever pitched and so forth and so on. We're all sinners. There is, the base of Calvary is level. There is none righteous, no, not one. You aren't a little less, you're not a better sinner than me. I'm not a less better sinner than you. There's no, you know, we, we look at felonies and misdemeanors and, and non-adjudicated crime. We look at different levels of, you know, of things, warnings. doesn't work in Scripture. The moment you were conceived in utero, you're a depraved, you're a depraved human being. We all, we're all on a freight train going to hell with no handbrake. We must remember this. We're not better than sinners. A believer in Jesus Christ who lives a good life is not better than a sinner. He or she is a sinner saved by grace in a relationship with God versus a person who's not in a relationship with God. Do not forget this ever in this discussion. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged as a sinful group of people that God destroyed just as he destroyed with a global flood and just as he will destroy when Christ returns again. There'll be two kinds of people in the end. Those who serve the lamb and those who are killed by his righteousness, just as the beginning. Um, frequently, people will suggest, well, Jesus never talks about same-sex marriage. Jesus never says you couldn't have a gay marriage. And they use these arguments from silence, or they twist Scripture to make an argument. And I find often believers are kind of on their heels on how to respond to this. Let me give you just a couple of insights to this. Number one, in Matthew 11, verse 20, Christ speaks about the denouncement of judgment of cities. And he specifically refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me just read part of this. I won't read the whole thing. Um, he's talking about the miracles that he uh, performed in Capernaum, Corazon, Bethsaida, and those people didn't believe him. And he's going to make a comparison that it's better, Sodom and Gomorrah are better off than you in the day of judgment. Let me just read the last part of this, picking up at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it, Sodom, would have remained here to this day. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus says, I came and performed miracles. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. They saw Jesus walk on water, heard story. They saw healings. They saw all kinds of miracles. I would argue some not recorded in Scripture, many. And they didn't believe him. They came for food. They came for a miracle. They came for a healing. But they didn't embrace him. He says, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because I came and showed up and you didn't, didn't believe or trust me. So Christ is lumping together the capricious evil, the malevolent evil, the unbridled sin of Sodom, saying it deserved that judgment. But you've denied the master and you will incur a judgment as well. In Luke 17, when Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, her heart and affections were in an immoral, godless society. And he turns her to salt. Judgment comes. The sword cuts two ways. Don't forget this. It's not politically correct to talk about it. We're not talking about political correctness. When Scotus ruled on the Obergefell Hodges uh, case, uh, commonly known as the same sex marriage case, uh, it's now legal in 50 states. Now, as a, a little bit of a sidebar, um, if you go to uh, a couple of resources here, ERLC is going to host a, a um, live stream symposium on the 29th of July, and uh, you can go online and watch that if you want. It's going to be a two-and-a-half-hour event. And then on, on my website, on In Context, shameless self-promotion, I'm sorry, uh, on Michael In Context, I have a blog, and then I have five resources at the bottom that I think are the best five resources I've come across. They're, they're fairly short, most of them. John Piper, um, uh, Russell Moore and others that are very well written and, uh, and, and there's a longer message from uh, Kevin DeYoung on there about homosexuality done in a loving ways but calling this what it is. We have to separate the issue of um, just because we disagree with someone does not mean we're unloving. Don't let the culture teach a theology. Don't let the world tell you what's right and wrong. And, and just because, well, you're not loving if you don't embrace this. Just erase that notion. To disagree is not being hateful. That's a weak argument. When you say, well, you're not tolerant, you're unloving, that's a weak argument because they don't want to argue the issues. And they're very clever at this, and they're very good at this. This is a war, as I said at the beginning. This is a spiritual context war, not a man versus man war. What I begin with, we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're level ground at Calvary. The difference is, this movement has institutionalized sin. That was John Piper's language. I liked it. Institutionalized sin. What he meant by that? Um, don't, don't be upset. Hang with me for the story. Don't be upset. Um, I am an adulterer and an immoral man in my heart. That's how I was made. That's how God made me. Therefore, Cindy, uh, I can do whatever I want because I, I'm an adulterer in my heart. I'm, I was made an immoral man so I could look at pornography. I can conquest women. I can do whatever I want. And this culture is fine with that. And honey, you're just going to have to accept that I'm an immoral man. No. Uh, today is my 35th wedding anniversary, and for 35 years, oh, don't do that, don't do that. For 35 years, uh, with self-control and the Holy Spirit's control and good people around me, Cindy and I have been faithful one to the other for 35 years. We're not any better than anybody else. I'm still an adulterer and an immoral heart. And 9% of the men in the room would say, I am too, and 1% are lying. <laughs> Did God make us immoral adulterers? No, it's called the sin nature. Does he make a pedophile? I'm a pedophile. Does he make a thief? I'm a thief. I'm covetous. I'm avarice. I'm greedy. I'm filling in the blank. Piper is on to something. We've institutionalized sin. We said, oh, you, that sin can be your identity. 
LGBTQ. You know what the Q stands for? Questioning. And you'll get in trouble if you don't put the Q on the end now. And what are we doing? We're expanding the definition to fit a culture of unbridled sin. And we're unloving because we call sin, sin. Matt Moore was with a panel that I did on a live stream. Christopher, you on Matt Moore, David Fowler, and me. And um, Christopher and Matt have come out of the gay lifestyle. And Matt had the greatest example. He says, loving a person who says they're same-sex attracted or gay, loving them is not accepting them as gay. He goes, that's intolerance. He goes, loving them is calling them to repent. The 25-year-old gay man saying this. Loving them is calling them to repent. If you, lo- if you love your child, you don't let them live in unbridled disobedience and rebellion and disrespect to parents and lying and stealing. You correct them. You, you lovingly correct them. No, honey, we don't do that. We're truthful people. We don't steal. We don't lie. We respect older people. You respect adults. And you train a child in the way they should go. You don't, uh, you don't absolve them. Oh, we're going to love you and let you express yourself because that's how God made you. God made you. No. Your sin nature is your identity because the ground of Calvary is level. So I can't hide behind this notion that I'm an adulterer and a womanizer because God made me that. Any more than a same-sex attracted, transgender attracted, bisexual, confused individual can say, that's how I'm made. No, you're not. That's your sin nature. That's my sin nature. We all have a sin nature. So Church of Jesus Christ, hear it clearly. It's not loving to say someone, that's how I'm made. That's endorsing sin. That's saying, okay, be true to yourself, baloney. That's the world humanism malarkey. Be true to yourself. Measuring humans by humans is a bad idea, let me tell you. It's a bad idea. It will always be the lowest common denominator. That's why the kid who makes all A's, we all hate his or her guts. We don't be measured by that person. I don't measure by the kid that made the worst grade. I'm better than him or her. You can't measure man by man. You've got to have a different standard. And the conscious is only part of it. It's got to be a spiritual conscious that measures it, not just a human conscience. I've told you again and again and again and again, don't let the world teach you theology. You've got to come to grips with one fact. Either you believe God's word is true or not. That's the bottom line. There are six key passages the same-sex group fights against because the, taken in black and white print, there's no way to get around it. Let me show you one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul says, don't be deceived. Do you hear what he's saying? Don't let the world teach you Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen carefully. Such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This was our condition before, our sin nature. But you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. You've been cleansed of all that unrighteousness. God looks down and doesn't see homosexual, gay, pedophile, murderer, thief, adulterer, fornicator, uh, pornography addict, uh, a person who robs and steals, covetous, avarice. Isn't it interesting? No one's coming out and saying, I'm a reviler. That's my nature. I'm a swindler. That's my nature. I'm, uh, unless Paul uses disobedience to parents. I'm, I'm, my identity is disobey my parents. That's, who, that's how God made me, disobey my parents. That's why the culture is not the measure. 
Don't let the world teach you how to think about God. What a foolish idea to think that the loud voices of our culture and a few Supreme Court justices can go against God. Listen, there's going to be a judgment one day that's big. It's big. Which side are you on? This is not a trifling thing. America's 239 years old. Big whoop. This is at least 4,000 years old. Do you think God's wringing his hands, walking heaven's floor, going, oh my word, America sanctions same-sex marriage. Oh my word, what are we going to do? Oh my word, what are we going to do? You think he's worried about this? Now, candidly, I've been following this way too closely. Up to my eyeballs in it. I got another hour of material you don't get to hear. I know you're happy. Let me tell you this. Corresponding with friends who write policy. And one, we were going back and forth on a number of talking points. And uh, he wrote me a letter. And at the end of it, he said, Michael, we were made for this time. And it, I did a 180 in my anger. And I went, you're right, Tom. You're right. We were made for this time. This happens on our watch. We're living, we're camped next to Sodom. No, we're in Sodom. And we have a loving God who's patient, wishing none to perish. He's not mad at the gays. He's not mad at the adulterers. He's not mad at the pornographers. He's not mad at the evil, licentious thieves and corporate moguls who are bleeding people and taking advantage of it, on and on, fill in the blanks. Because the ground at Calvary is level. The difference is my identity is not a sin nature. My identity is in the person and work of Jesus Christ who paid for my sins on my behalf instead of me. That's your message. And you and I need to not live in fear but in faith. Smile at the future and know that this was the time in our world's economy where egregious sexual immorality has become sanctioned by the state. We'll fight it. Who knows how long? Five, ten, twenty years. Let's say they come after a church-like fellowship, and they come to sue us. And they say, well, we're loving. We want Lloyd, Bill, Rob, Michael to perform this wedding service. We'll say, you know what? We love you. We're glad you're part of fellowship. You're welcome. Any of our stuff. We've got a whole room full of sinners. Anybody here not a sinner, raise your hand. All sinners, raise your hands. Yeah, that's a cue. Raise your hand. Okay, so, so you just, you, the argument's level. We're all level ground at Calvary, right? We're all welcome here. We all have our issues. Hurts, victims, judgment, hard things we've done, immorality, pornography. We've all done it. We've all done it. Just, we've all done it. We're all sinners. But we won't sanction your sin. It's not okay to live in pornography. It's not okay to live in immorality. It's not okay to have multiple affairs on your spouse. It's not okay to steal from your job. It's not okay to be addicted to Oxycontin. It's not okay to be addicted to Coke. It's not okay to lie and cheat. It's not okay to hook up as a kid in high school. It's not okay to do those things. We're not mad at you. We love you. We're calling you to Christ, not to live like the insane world in which we're living near. But we can't do a wedding for you. I'm sorry. And they're going to sue us. may not happen to us, but it'll happen to the church. It's going to happen to religious freedom. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet or a distant cousin. I will predict it's going to happen to religious organizations. They're going to go after them. And then it's going to be bake the cake. And they're going to take away our tax exemption. What's going to happen in fellowship and every church? The donations are going to drop. Because many people give because, yeah, it's important, but it's also a tax benefit. Would we give as much as it wasn't? Not trying to make you feel guilty, just a reality. Let's say we lost 30% of our income when they take our tax exemption away. We'll still meet. 
Now I've got a real problem. I have yet to get a straight answer out of an attorney. I've asked several. If I'm, a non, if I'm no longer nonprofit, I'm working for profit, can I monetize the church? Can I make money on it and charge you for child care? How about that? Cost you $10 to put your kid back there. Who knows? I'm just being silly. Will that stop litigation? No. So the punitive nature of taking away tax exemption from charities and religious organizations and nonprofits, that's just punitive. Can you be, can you live with faith and not fear? Worst case scenario, we're home churches. Worst case scenario, we meet groups all over town in homes. I don't think it'll happen in our lifetime. It could. And maybe in 50 years, Lord tarries, a whole revival starts again. Who knows? Do not put your hope in the White House. Do not put your hope in SCOTUS. Do not put your hope in your elected politician. And you know how much I love politics. Do not put your hope on those people. Put your hope in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sovereign God of the universe, who loves the despicable sinner so much that he sent his son to be justified, killed, so that you and I have a way to heaven. That's the gospel. Don't be mad. Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Please don't back down in fear and not say anything. Speak the truth in love. Smile at the future. Live in faith, not in fear. And know that you and I were made for this. We were made for this. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your word, as applicable as it is in a time like this. We see our nation in peril in so many ways, from enemies, foreign and domestic, from ISIS, from corrupt, immoral leaders, and we can wring our hands in fear. You are God. You are not afraid. You are not worried. You are the sovereign creator, sustainer of all that we know and see and that which we cannot see. May we be men and women of good courage in you, of faith in you, not hateful but loving, but not afraid to speak the truth. May we be such men and women for this time. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.